Be with us this morning, God. Quiet our hearts. May our spirits be still that we might hear from you. Amen. As dark and as difficult and as devastating as death can be, there's a beautiful thing that happens just after one's passing. Most people don't get to witness it as regularly as I do because most people are not pastors and thus are not charged with connecting the life story of the recently deceased with the larger story of God and God's purposes in the world. But for pastors like me who are charged with this task, we quite often get to see this beautiful thing happen. And that beautiful thing is this. When a pastor goes to sit with a grieving family, and when Wei eventually leads on to Wei, and they together begin to discuss the funeral service, and when the pastor then asks the family to tell him or her stories about the deceased, to share memories of their loved one, and why they believe it imperative that these stories get included in the eulogy remarks, when asked for memories that capture the essence of the deceased, when this moment in the conversation arises, and when those stories and details and descriptions and memories start coming forth, seldom if ever does a pastor hear something like this. Well, he had his PhD from Harvard. Or, you know she sat on five really influential boards, right? Or, did you know that his net worth was actually upward in the three millions? Or, she was the one everyone in town knew that you had to be in good with if you wanted to be someone. Seldom, if ever, does a pastor in these moments hear stories or descriptions like that. Instead, we usually hear things like this. She was kind to everyone, no matter who they were. He was selfless, always putting others' needs ahead of his own. She lived for her family. He cared so much about his community. I never heard a mean word said about her. These are the things when the dust has settled and death has come with its definitive verdict. These are the things that we as human beings say to describe the loved ones that we've just lost. Am I right? And here's why I say this is beautiful. Amid the tears and the sorrow and the anguish and the pain, here's why I say this moment is beautiful. Because here in this moment, we as human beings, through the lens of death and its finality, here in this moment, we as human beings see clearly, though altogether too briefly, what is really most important in life. Goodness. Righteousness. Fairness. Service. 
humility, humor, love. Here in this moment, with the human desire to live big in the world suddenly inoperative, and with the human competitiveness and need to win no longer in the driver's seat, finally here in this very brief moment, we see clearly what really matters about a human life. Not net worth, not academic pedigree, not job title, not community influence, not any of the things we spend so much of our lives pursuing as if they are what a human life is really about. No, in the end, when death comes, we narrate our beloved's life through the language of timeless virtue. And it's a beautiful thing to behold. Now the reason I open today's sermon with a reflection like this is because today marks the first Sunday in Lent. And Lent is the season when we as Christians grapple with our own mortality, with the reality that we are not our own creators and sustainers, and that as such we are with every waking breath dependent upon God and upon others, in other words, not upon our own selves, for our ultimate provision. Lent is our reminder that no matter how big we live in the world, no matter how much we are able to create, no matter how much power we come to wield, no matter how much comfort we surround ourselves with, no matter how sophisticated our lives become, Lent is our reminder that in the end, death will come even for us. That we can't buy our way out of it, or build our way out of it, or medicate our way out of it, or barter our way out of it, or even pray our way out of it. That in the end, we too are mortal and always have been, that we too are dust, and therefore to dust we too shall return. That is the message of Lent. And unlike the Easter message, which we look forward to with deep, heavy longing, unlike the Easter message, the Lenten message is a sobering message for us to hear. Because if we are honest with ourselves, we exert a great deal of energy trying to avoid this reality. But that's the very point, then, of Lent. Lent steps in once a year to remind us of the folly of trying to evade this reality. Of trying to deny our own mortality and our own self-insufficiency. Lent steps in once a year to remind us that in the face of the inevitable, we can either double down and trust more fully in ourselves and in our perceived abilities to control our lives and the world and people around us, or we can surrender to and trust in God, the one who created us and who sustains us, and in so doing confess that in the end we ultimately have no control over our own lives and over the people in the world around us. 
that whatever we do have and that whatever we have accomplished comes to us as a gift from God and not as a claim to which we are entitled. And that way, Lent then invites us to reconfess that which we as Christians confessed at the first, that Jesus Christ is Lord, and moreover, that if He is, then we are not. So why it is helpful to ask ourselves at the outset of Lent, is Jesus Christ Lord? Why do we profess that? And why should we put our trust in Him and in the God who raised Him from the dead rather than in ourselves and in the various things that we can do to raise ourselves in the estimation of our peers and of the world around us? Why put our trust in Him and why not put our trust in in ourselves? These are important questions to ask. And so as to help us approach this question, the first Sunday in Lent always brings the Christian church to the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness, to the bracing, harrowing scene of Jesus, who, by the way, has just been baptized and has just heard God's voice claiming him and blessing him and commissioning him for ministry, now suddenly being driven straightway by God's Spirit into the wilderness, where he will ultimately remain for 40 days being tested and tried, and all the while trusting in God's purposes and not in his own desires to make it through this difficult period. Here in the wilderness, having just been affirmed by God as God's chosen, now wrestling with what his vocation as God's chosen will look like. That is, wrestling with what it is that he will do and how he will go about doing it. Now, in this passage, now he faces three temptations from the tempter. And they amount to this. Make something out of nothing gain power over the world, prove to everyone just how special you really are. Those underneath the language they come wrapped in are the temptations. And here's why those were particularly tempting for Jesus. Because Jesus, more than anyone else in human history, could make something out of nothing. Because Jesus, more than anyone else, could gain power over all the world. Because Jesus, more than anyone else, could prove how special he really was. But instead, in the face of each temptation, desirable things which Jesus discerned were desires of his own will, not God's. In the face of each, Jesus resisted said, in essence, my own desires for security and comfort and power and status are not the desires you, God, have for me in my life. And thus I will not, though I feel drawn to, put my hopes and my purposes and my life's preoccupation in these things. And as the story tells us, he didn't. And so as the story tells us, the tempter therefore left him until, quote, Another opportune time. 
Now, we'll come back to Jesus in the wilderness in just a moment. But for now, though, I want us to think carefully about these three temptations. And I want us to think of them not as colorful cases from a story long ago, but as realities we each face day in and day out ourselves. Make something out of nothing. Gain power over everyone and everything else. Prove how special we are in comparison to all others. Fyodor Dostoevsky in The Brothers Karamazov famously spends upwards of 10,000 words trying to show how these three temptations encompass every temptation that we as human beings face in our own lives. Again, make something out of nothing, gain power over everyone and everything else, prove how special we are in comparison to all others. Dostoevsky writes, and I quote, If all the world sages, all the legislators, all the philosophers and thinkers were called upon to frame three questions that should express in three short sentences the whole future history of our world and of humankind, do you believe that all their combined efforts could create anything equal in power and depth to the three propositions offered by that powerful and all-wise spirit in the wilderness. End quote. In other words, could anyone, could any group possibly get at the heart of that which drives humankind more than did the tempter with these three propositions? Make something out of nothing. Gain power over everyone and everything else. Prove how special we are in comparison to others. That, Dostoevsky is arguing, is what we, like Jesus, are constantly being tempted by as human beings. And therefore, that is what finally brings me back around to where I started this sermon, which is thinking about the difference in the way we talk about our loved ones before their passing and after. As I said earlier, the curious thing and the beautiful thing about the way we describe our loved ones after death is that for the first time, these temptations that drive us so powerfully during our lives are suddenly exposed as fleeting, as temporary, as ephemeral, and therefore as ultimately of no abiding significance. And therefore, suddenly, for the first time, the things that Jesus prized in the face of the tempter show themselves as being the things that really do matter. Because suddenly, these things reveal themselves as being the only things that are permanent and lasting and timeless and therefore worth desiring. Suddenly, in the valley of the shadow of death, we don't want to tell of how our loved ones lived big in the world. We want to tell of how they made themselves small in service to it. Suddenly, we don't want to tell of how our loved ones accumulated all things. We want to tell of how much they selflessly gave away. Suddenly, we don't want to tell of how our loved ones were singularly special. 
We want to tell of how our loved ones were special only, account, only on account of how ordinary they really were. Do you see? Suddenly in the face of death, all the things that seem so important in life somehow become small. And in their place, all the things that seem so small, so secondary, so optional, suddenly in the face of death, those become the things we feel to be most important. The writer David Brooks refers to this as seeing what he calls the eulogy virtues in tension with what he calls the resume virtues. And in his book, The Road to Character, he argues that we spend most of our lives hyper-consumed with our resume virtues and in so doing often forget how much more important and desirable in the long run the eulogy virtues are. And I bring up Brooks right now, not only because I think he's right, but because I think he's here, albeit unwittingly, re-explaining the deeper message to be found in the story of Christ in the wilderness. For if we look closely at its core, the story of Christ in the wilderness is the story of Christ being tempted to burnish his resume virtues so that he'll forget to attend to the eulogy virtues that God sent him to earth to embody. Do you follow that? Think of how different Christ's ministry on earth would have been if he had allowed himself to turn those stones to bread and to exercise power over all kingdoms and to leap from that pinnacle without suffering a scratch or bruise on his body. That is to say, think how much different Christ's ministry on earth would have been if he had pursued his own power and his own prominence and his own glory and his own security rather than do that which he did, which is quietly and humbly and selflessly trust in the God whose kingdom he was humbly proclaiming. Think of how different things would have been. He would have been the most powerful and most capable and most talented and most invulnerable person to ever walk the face of the earth. And in so doing, he would have proved all the prophets wrong and he would have provided the ultimate model for egotism and the will to power. But he didn't. And because he didn't, God raised him from the dead and gave him the name that is above every name to be the first fruits of redeemed humanity, the model upon which our own broken humanity is therefore to be based. Are we all together? So to pull this all together then, the reason we are so tempted by the allure of power and status and security and self-sufficiency is because at bottom we want to believe that we can insulate ourselves and our loved ones from all danger and from all discomfort and even in the end from death's final word. And because these are the narcotics that can desensitize us to this otherwise laughable lie. Even though we know deep down that we can't escape danger and discomfort and death, we use these things to deceive ourselves into momentarily believing that we can. 
And the reality is, and the reason this is so tempting for us is because in the moment, this can seem like it's working. If we're lucky, and if we're savvy, and if we're creative, and if we play our cards just right, we can get by, at least for the moment, trusting in ourselves and in our own abilities. If we play our cards right, we can turn stones into bread. And we can gain power over others. And we can become special in the eyes of those around us. At least for a moment. But as Christians, Lent comes around each year to remind us of one inescapable truth. Which is that we can never make enough bread. Or gain enough power. Or become so singular special that we can barter away our own mortality and vulnerability. For in the end, we are all dependent creatures made by God, destined in the end to return to God. And Lent, in reminding us of this fact, holds up before us the finite amount of time we have on this earth that is this short stretch of time we have here in this awesome yet anxiety-riddled wilderness and shows us two different ways to face this reality. The way of the tempter or the way of the teacher. The way of self-sufficiency or the way of surrender. The way of false control or the way of following Christ. And so on this first Sunday in Lent, let us ask ourselves, Boulevard Baptist, how do we want to spend our time in this glorious wilderness into which God's Spirit has driven us? Do we want to spend our days honing our eulogy virtues or burnishing our resume virtues? Do we want to live for ourselves or do we want to live for others? Do we want to be our own lords? Or do we want to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord instead? Again, these are hard questions. But the Christian position on them is very clear. Through his resurrection, Jesus Christ has proven that humankind is made for so much more than bread and power and reputation. Through his resurrection, Jesus Christ has proven that on the other side of these temporary distractions stands true life eternal. So this Lenten season, let us not be distracted by the things in our lives that shimmer falsely. Let us, Boulevard Baptist, instead rededicate our lives this Lent to the one whose disciplined way leads onward toward life abundant. Amen.